0: Welcome back, everyone, to a brand new episode of the Crypto and Muay Thai Podcast. I am super excited to welcome our next guest today, Paul Banasiak. He is a current pro Muay Thai fighter. Uh, living over in Thailand. If any of you follow him on Instagram, he's the Muay Thai technician. Um, he is also the founder of the Online Striking Academy, and just all around seems like a pretty cool dude. Uh, so we'll see how the conversation goes. Hopefully, we can keep that same that same general frame of reference. Uh, but regardless, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. How are you doing today, Paul?
1: Oh man, it's a pleasure to be here. You know, you really picked two very Niche-oriented uh, topics here to <laughs> use as a podcast title.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's you know, in this ever-growing world of needing to stand out, but also the same exact time uh, trying to fit in. You're like, you know what? Screw it. I I run a, a you know a cryptocurrency investment business, and I enjoy that. And I you know used to fight Muay Thai. I'm long since retired, but I love it. So you know what? I'm going to do a podcast where. We talk about that if i've got a uh guest where we can talk about both awesome but if not we're gonna, just going to do separate episodes and we're going to talk about it so i've kind of that's the perks of being in your 30s you kind of stop giving so much of a shit about yeah. you know what other people want and you start focusing on more of like what you want so you know take that for what it's worth
1: <laughs> though i feel like i'm an old soul even when i was like 17 i felt like i was 30 now it's really coming up i'm turning 28 so I definitely understand where you're coming from, and I'm into both topics, so that works out perfectly here.
0: Okay, awesome, awesome. I can't let's I can't wait to to talk about uh, to talk about both of them with you. So for any people that might be listening, um, that are unfamiliar with you, just just giving your your general background, um, you know, like who you are, how you obviously got into Muay Thai, um, and then we'll just sort of just grow from there.
1: And it's been quite an adventure and I've done a lot of soul searching, even trying to find out why I got in the sport in the first place. Cause I, I get asked this question of how I got into it, but it's, I think a little bit deeper than the physical part of, you know, you stepping in the gym and having the class. I think everyone steps into the gym and tries a uh, sport as a uh, ruthless as Muay Thai or MMA. And it comes from a more deeply rooted place. So going way, way back. I was actually born in Poland and I grew up on a very tiny uh, little farm town. I lived above a police station with my mother and my grandmother and my father was never really around. So I grew up pretty much being raised by my grandmother. My great grandmother went through the world war, met uh, met her husband uh, as a prisoner in a war camp and we ended up later moving to the northern part of Poland. Before my mother pretty much dropped everything she had. Uh, you know, she had a she just got her master's degree in physical education. Physical education uh, in Europe is completely different than it is here in the states. Let me tell you that, <laughs> uh, off the bat. So it it was a pretty big deal for her. She was the first person in our family to get through college, and on top of that, to get her master's, go on to want to do her PhD, but instead dropped everything, wanted to give me a better future and brought us to the States. And we adapted rather quickly. It was really nice to see uh, the two different parts of the world. And now, especially that I live in Asia for the past few years, just having the perspective of three different parts of the world. And um, when I was in college from high school fast forwarding just real quick to when i actually got into muay thai i was in backyards in high school i felt like i always wanted to do things that depended on me and i would be the ultimate part of the result where other people if they're influenced and i can never give full blame to myself or the full um the full part of success uh, doesn't really hit the same way when it's a team sport. I, I've tried every team sport I can from basketball to football and nothing really hit the way that extreme sports did for me. So I was always kind of like the rebel skateboarder, snowboarding, riding street bikes, uh, super sports. When I was just turning 18 and running from the cops, and things like that. And when fighting uh, kind of came about, my friend used to have guys in his backyard and it was just kind of a first blood thing. But looking back at it, it was kind of silly because there was never bad blood. It was just guys from school. They just wanted to test their egos in a way. <laughs> and one of the guys actually trained in boxing and he whooped my ass. And I went up to him right after and I asked where he trains. Because I never wanted that to happen to me again, <laughs> for someone to be able to just pick his shots and actually have his feet underneath himself and know what he's doing. Uh, a lot of the times when I was fighting back there is my, my toughness w- was my skill. Uh, just coming from the extreme sports, it was always like... Uh, <laughs> excuse my language, it was always just like, man, don't be a pussy, let's go, bitch. And then you go and you do it, you go, ah, fuck it. (laughs) That kind of community. Uh, So that that kind of translated to the world of fighting for me, especially when I first started. And uh, within my first six weeks of being in the gym and getting shark tanked every day, that's what I thought training was. That's what I thought fighting was. I had my first fight after the first, uh, like five, six weeks of training.
0: First five, six weeks. Wow. Mm -hmm. So the your path, I mean, I've talked to several fighters, obviously, it's not entirely uncommon um, to just sort of be drawn to that particular element, but also the same exact genesis as to wanting to get professional or more structured. Um, training because there's always a humility piece and and that's again what's great about martial arts and in particular combat martial arts is you know from my perspective everyone should be forced to train in them because it just humbles you because even to this day if you're like oh yeah I'm a bad like I'm bad it's like no there's someone way worse than you that will that will humble you so it all automatically like puts that humility in and for individuals maybe like yourself or or like myself where there's something in like inside that draws you to that so my fiance one time i can't remember what it was in relation to but there was some fighter or former fighter like at our gym and like she was looking at them and and like there's something like wrong with this person i was like I was like, there's something wrong with all of us. Like no one willfully chooses to fight. Like if there's not something in there that they're just using the physical form, like of fighting and martial arts to like work through. So I think that that story uh, probably resonates with a lot of fighters in a lot of different ways.
1: Yeah. You know, there are definitely nerds in in the sport that are looking at it from a very technical aspect and Uh, That part is definitely within me as well. So while I'm talking about all this and all these different things that I was doing in the background and wanting to be more of a rebel, at the same time, I was trying to be the golden child at the same time. Like while I was doing these things, I was always a high honor student. I graduated with gold cords in college and in high school. Uh, I never got into trouble with... uh, I, I talked about running from the cops one time on the sport bike, and that was pretty much after pretty much living an entire life of, uh, perfection, you know, uh, coming from Europe and not having much opportunity there to coming here. Uh, that type of immigrant mentality that comes with your parents, where you have to pretty much toe the line and follow the blueprint. I came here. I gave you this opportunity. You have to take advantage of it. You know, like a B plus is not good enough. If you can get an a, even a minus you can always do better. That's how it always was in my household. And going into college, um, I eventually wanted to become an an anesthetist. I found a way to not be a doctor, to do a whole doctorate and start my life at 30, but still do a medical degree that to my parents would be something of significance. (laughs) And what ended up happening is I told them I would go through... RN school to be able to get into the extra p- program just as like a uh, easy in and to maybe prove that I can do it and then eventually do my own thing. I was always into tech. I was also, um, in. I was doing video since I was in fourth, fifth grade, just with like a mini DV camera, r- literal videotapes, editing on my TV, rewinding, taping over. And when I was snowboarding, skateboarding, recording, all of that. So I had a lot of passions, but to my parents, they never made money. (laughs) You know, like this is is never going to make you money. So I I wanted to make them happy. And when I was in my third year, so I was the youngest person in the program. There was only like uh, out of all the recipients, I was the youngest one. I got in at 19 and a year into clinical. I had a chance to have an out and that was one of the tests where you couldn't get below a 76.5, I believe. It had to round up to a 77 and I missed it by less than one point. And I remember I was sitting there on the test, those 20 questions left. And I, I made the decision there. I don't know what made me make this decision. But I literally went down the line and I just circled the same like like A B C D A B C D or A, A A A. I can't remember now. But I pretty much said like you know what? No, this is it. I'm gonna do what I wanna do. I've I've proven that I'm I'm smart enough, my IQ is there um but i'm just not following what i truly want to do i'm not following my passion so i was in i was in clinical practice i was doing lectures i was also working 20 hours as a server and i was fighting twice a semester on top of it training every single day and uh still to make them proud i finished with a health and exercise science degree just a quick little two-year degree to make them happy and the second i got my diploma never even picked it up i made my way over to Thailand and moved to Thailand.
0: Interesting. Interesting. So it's, it's almost like a self not a self sabotage situation, but you're like, okay, like mm. where you, where you had like this moment of clarity where you're like, what am I doing? Because at that point you realized it's like, if you click this button, you're kind of like choosing a defined path for your life potentially that you didn't necessarily want it to be
1: oh i don't mean to cut you off but that definitely went through my head i remember my mother said listen if you want to do what you want to do that's cool but if you get into this program you get your bachelor's or you get your four year then uh, if you work three or four tw- uh, 3 12 hour shifts that'll still be full time and then you have four days to train and do whatever you want and that's the way she was selling me and then i thought about it and how i will depend on that for the rest of my life and mm-hmm. it would be so easy to get into that routine and now looking back at it even she is laughing but that didn't come until she actually saw that i can make money to what to her is out of thin air.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's it. That's, that's funny that that was like something that was, that was sort of going through your mind and 100% like it is whenever you get to those certain types of situations, especially coming out of academia, it's very easy to get complacent. So like my personal example is I went back and got my graduate degree a few years ago. I think it was four years ago now. But the defined paths on that are you either go into banking or you go into consulting. Like our school in particular pumped out a lot of consultants, but also like tech product managers that went off to go work for Amazon. And those were the three mm. things. And you know, you're know you making a bunch of money doing that, but it's not necessarily following your dream or following your passion. At least for me, it wasn't. And I knew like I went back to graduate school to see whether or not I actually wanted to be an entrepreneur where I was just in love with the idea of being an entrepreneur. And like through that process, I realized, you know, I wanted to dip my toe in this. I wanted to be an entrepreneur in some capacity. I didn't know what it was going to be at that particular point, but I knew by taking those high salary jobs that I would never get out of it. I knew there was, because Mm. once you start making, you know, good money in these professions and then you layer on, getting married, then you later on getting kids then a mortgage and all that stuff. It's very, very difficult for you to pump the brakes at, you know, 35, 40, 45 and say, you know what, I'm actually going to follow the passion that I actually wanted to do from, you know, straight from the jump. It, it doesn't make any sense. So you kind of, you come to this fork in the road, um, where I felt it. And obviously you felt it there as well. So there's there's that, you make your you make your choice. And at that point, were you still amateur? You're fighting Muay Thai. Were you still amateur or were you pro at that particular point?
1: Yeah, I was an amateur. Now now I have a question for you. When yeah, please. when when all this happened, do you feel like you got into it for one reason but then found that it still benefited you and you stayed in it for a different reason like it morphed like you said like you were in love with the idea of being an entrepreneur which sometimes sounds like it's kind of a superficial uh motivator yeah but later down the line you can actually find different reasons of like why you stayed in it especially when you're questioned like why do i keep doing this
0: So I think the two principal reasons, that's a good question. And I mean, the two principal reasons that I wanted to see whether or not I had what it took to be an entrepreneur was I don't work well for other people. You know, it's just, it's a, it's a wiring like of my brain where I do very well with myself again, sort of that individual sport mentality. I played, you know, team sports, I played football, basketball, but boxing, Muay Thai, I like that because I was accountable. You have a team, you have your coaches, you have your training partners, but it's you in there and only you are accountable. So it's just a different wiring. So it was that, but also the thought of money like at that particular point coming from a tech school. So I graduated from Carnegie Mellon, which is heavy in tech. And the new thing that was super fashionable was startups and people going from zero to, $20 Twenty million dollars hundred million dollars two hundred million dollar exits within five years, and that's super sexy, and you know they made a show about it on HBO, so you get caught up in that, so you you jump in for the at least for me for those two primary reasons, but as you inevitably kind of get the shit kicked out of you in entrepreneurship, um, you that won't last, so you 've got to stick around to it like sometimes like people who really are there, like I am in this for the money, I want to be a billionaire they'll continue to persist because that is their driving force. But ultimately for me, money's not the end all be all. Like I want money to be able to do what I want to do, but also to be able to help out some of the areas that I want to help out, whether it's through, you know, my communities or giving back in my particular way. And unfortunately in our society, you need to be a success professionally and you need to have money as to grease the skids to be able to do that. So that's my main driver's, to keep me in it, pushing towards my North star. But in the short term, what keeps me like, what keeps me moving is the fact that I love working for myself and having my own schedule. And f- I'm fortunate that I met my fiance and showed me, and she showed me a different lifestyle to where it's not just all work, 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 work. If, if she's gone, I'll just continue to just work and work. But she showed me mm-hmm. like, Hey, there's other elements to be able to enjoy life. So having that ability to enjoy life but also set up some of these other you know adjacent areas like this like this this hits so many intellectual points for me and it has nothing to do with my with my investment fund business but it 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 helps me like i i love it it touches all the intellectual points and everything that i would need so i can only do this because i'm an entrepreneur so those elements have gradually kept me in it more while still with my north star being to have financial security so in so far that i can um push the needle forward in my small way in my small corner of the world
1: that's very similar uh, i think that's pretty linear to my thought pattern as well I, I definitely had some uh like short-term motivators long-term motivators and both of which definitely changed since I started. I've actually been actually good working with others and working for others. I think I just do really well adapting to the situation that I'm given. A lot of it, uh, just doing a lot of the soul searching, I, I find that it's definitely been passed down from my mother and from my parents and from my upbringing that, you know, like, this is what you're handed. Fucking work with it and uh, don't complain and don't complain about it so there was no such thing as saying oh I don't do this well with others or I don't do this well with just by myself like I had to do both like if there was something I had to do by myself it doesn't fucking matter you have to and same thing when it comes with others it's like you don't like others I don't care you have to learn how to play with others (laughs) so uh, it's made made me maybe a little less empathetic now that I'm older (laughs) but I, I feel like it's definitely helped me adapt as well.
0: No, I I think that's just a natural process of, so, I mean, I don't come from immigrant parents, but the general story that you hear, at least within the United States is it's all a particular, you know, similar type of story. And in all honesty, um, you know, there's, there's tons and tons and tons of admirable things. And that's why you see, where if you look in the, the Forbes or whatever, at least from an entrepreneurial perspective, whether that be tech, working up through the ranks or starting their own company, a lot of them are immigrants because they have that particular background and that mindset. So, I mean, anything that you want to accomplish that's worthwhile in this world, you're going to have to have a growth mindset to be able to do it. If you come in, I know this or I know that or I don't want to do this, I don't want to do that. Mm. You're, not to, you're not going to get very far uh, in particular, whenever you're looking at combat sports like Muay Thai, if you think I'm the bad, you know, I, I'm, I'm super tough, I can do this, or I, uh, I only like to do, you know, these types of things, you know, whenever I talk to some fighters, or, or former fighters that we used to train, it's like, well, you need to work on this because you could get clipped here or this where you can run into trouble. It's like, well, I don't really like to, there's always a, there's always an answer. And those people, uh, it, it's like you, you will not last. You, you will not last with me as your trainer, nor will you last if you continue to try to work up through the ranks because you think you, you know it all. And I think that's a little bit more uh, problematic or a little bit more of a byproduct of just the, the age that we live in versus, you know, super, super traditional uh, where I kind of was, was brought up through, which has its trade-offs uh, in and of itself. I don't think that's necessarily the best way either.
1: I know the exact type of person that you're talking about and a lot of times over time you hear those things like that type of uh answer back to you as a coach and after some time you just stop investing a lot of your time and effort and eventually they learn the lessons on their own or just completely fizzle out unfortunately honestly the best students i've ever had and the people that i've had long life relationships with through the sport and they've all been people that are just like way off one end or the other where um the closest people that I've worked with is people with like background of sexual abuse uh drug abuse physical abuse um people from like really really dark places I don't, I don't know what has made me uh connect with those people the most, especially when I'm working with them versus the other coaches that are in the gym. Um, perhaps the fact that I'm pretty blunt and straightforward, but, um, it's, it's always objective and it's never judgmental in a way that looks at, uh, looks at it emotionally, you know, like it it always comes from a very objective standpoint and a place of wanting to actually help. And those are the people, man, I've stayed up till midnight before. With working some working with some of these students from like 8 p.m. 9 p.m. until 11 midnight, and then just talking and talking after.
0: I I couldn't agree more, and I mean I have a very similar style coaching, which I realize isn't for everyone. If you ask any of my fighters, they're, they'll tell. It, it's very not hard nosed, but it's more old school. Like there's less room for bullshit. You know, if we're if I'm if if you want to be a fighter, I I, I tell you instantly that I'm now going to treat you differently. You're going to have more, it's going to be a harder time for you, not because I have an ego or I want to put you through the ringer, It's because now there's consequences, there's repercussions. Like if you're coming in to get a workout in or you just want to get in shape or learn self-defense, that's, that's an entirely separate bucket and we'll handle that accordingly and we'll coach accordingly. But if you want to enter the ring, there's now consequences that I need to make sure that you're ready for because if I'm telling you to do something and you're not doing it or you're not taking it seriously, you know, just like you said, Muay Thai, even at an amateur level, is a very, very dangerous sport. And I never want to be in a situation where I just let someone go in that I knew or, you know, suspected that they were not ready and then they end up getting injured. That's never a position that I want to be in. That can always happen organically, but that doesn't need to happen um, you know, because of lack of preparation or I just let this individual do what they wanted to do because the, the, the training style of the day is in a lot of ways, you know, maybe at least back side where the the students actually kind of like run things, you know, you've got to mm-hmm. work around them a little bit. It's like, I, I, I find that so, so confusing sometimes whenever I see it in practice at like other gyms, I'm like, how is this working? Like how, how are you going to learn whenever I'm not the authority figure any longer? It's like, I, I, it's like, I'm working for you.
1: It's interesting how things change uh, with time. It's definitely taking some adaptation for me with coaching for sure. Mm -hmm. And, and, and the way I address things and have to segregate them and kind of flipping switches between this type of coach and that type of coach, this person or, or that person. But Swinging back all the way to your other question of whether I was still an amateur uh, during the time that I made that switch and knew I wanted to move to Thailand, I was. <clears throat> I, was I had an opportunity to fight at Madison Square Garden when I was in uh, clinical study. So it was my first year of clinical. And so my third year of college, first year of clinical, and I knew how busy it would be. And I remember we would be sitting in um, meetings, like going over like patient papers and looking at their diagnoses and things like that. And I I remember telling the teacher, hey, this weekend, I can't come in to get the papers from the day before uh, to study the patient. Can I move to the next clinical and explaining that I'm going to be fighting in New York City uh, and asking for that. And other people are like, man, my husband is at home and I'm not, uh, I'm not working just so I can pass these tests. And you're out here kind of like diddling in the sport, you know, like you're not getting paid to do it. And I had this opponent. Uh, so the first time I fought full rules was in Atlantic City and I fought another really tall opponent. It was my first ever loss. Uh, I was 6-0, and o, mostly finishes, and they brought me to Atlantic City to fight. It was awesome. The first time I got put up in a hotel and the whole shebang and weigh-ins on video and having a pay-per-view stream and things like that. And I remember Cyrus Washington was the main event. And then right below him, there was a Dutch fighter named Jason Van Oijen And he was fighting for the title. They had the shiny white belt. I guess he was a pro in Europe and you know how it works there. They have like this overall scheme, like ABC class. He came to the States and he was just, I guess an undefeated amateur instead. <laughs> and I remember he was in my locker room and he was just hitting pad, just whop, whop, that relentless, heavy Dutch style, like a muscular bald dude like me. But I was so skinny at the time. I was like 22 years old and I remember watching him. I turned to my coach and I said, I want to look like that one day. Like, that's what I want my pad boy to look like. And then one year passed since that day, literally one year. And my coach called me, uh, you know, I was getting out of school and he goes, Hey, I will fight for you. Madison Square Garden. The thing is, remember that guy that you were talking about hitting pads backstage? I go, yeah. He's like, that's your opponent. I took a deep breath. And I was, All right, you think I can do it? And he's like, I think we got something. We'll work on it. And I go, okay, let's do it. Fuck it. Madison Square Garden. <laughs> and um, I dropped him in the second round with a head kick. And it's crazy how, in, in your head, uh, things can change because I never wanted, I never even looked at fighting as uh, something I'm ever gonna do for the rest of my life. When I first got in the gym, I just wanted to really, you know, see if I can get inside a real high pressure situation and perform well. So after those first six weeks, I got in, it was a cage Muay Thai fight on like one of those mixed shows. Mm. And I ended up doing well and I went, okay, maybe can do this again. and. And then maybe I'll get a knockout one day. And then I got a knockout. I go, okay, maybe, maybe I can go and win a belt. Then I won a belt. Oh, wow, this is cool. Never have I thought I'm even going to turn pro. I remember my mother yelling at me like, hey, like you're playing around in this. Do you think about doing this professionally? Like doing it with, you know without headgear and things like that? And I go, no, never. There's no way. Next thing I'm fighting Madison Square Garden, uh, you know, it's like semi-pro. There's no, there's no gear on. And the second I dropped him with a head kick, I thought about, uh, I think I can do this. I've only had, you know, this much training. I'm really dedicated to this. I'm showing up every day. <clears throat> I'm noticing how there's a lot of guys that aren't putting in as much work as me, even though they have more time than me. Like I said, I was in clinical, I was in lecture, I was working 20 hours a week, and I was still somehow getting it done. I thought, okay, if I maybe shift some of that time towards more training, maybe I can do this pretty well. And then I just went all in. <laughs> yeah, I just after that, it, it, it made me realize my potential, like how far you can really take it. And, um, and that's when I said, I, I'll go to Thailand, Um, at first it was only a one month trip, then a two month trip. And then I fought Madison square garden for the second time. This was at a point where I was amateur for a while. I won the nationals two years in a row. I went to worlds in Spain for WKA at the time. They didn't have the big IFMA tournaments in the, in the U S. So this was like the only big one that was around and I ended up fighting pros in the tournament. Again, fighting versus Netherlands, fighting versus England, two pros. And then there was one amateur from Spain. I beat all of them and came home. I was 9-0 and that year. They offered me a fight against the number one ranked guy on the East Coast. He had close to 30 plus fights as an amateur. This guy, Gaius Ebrat from Five Points Academy. And Five Points Academy was the only gym to beat me. So my whole amateur career, uh, that really tall fighter was also from his gym and so I was like okay so this is pretty much for the one number one spot it was the main event it was a triumphant uh triumph combat at Madison Square Garden where the main event both like 50 plus amateur fights in total between us I ended up winning the split decision but I knew it was a boxing judging crowd. So I threw a lot of boxing, but he controlled me in the clinch in a way I've never been controlled before. It was a guy, my height. And I thought, okay, if I want to ever go pro, I I can't have this happen. I can't have someone be able to control me the way this man just controlled me in the clinch. I was able to neutralize it, but I never felt so like helpless offensively, meaning I was just kind of hanging on, you know? To be able to break off and then land my shots from the outside, and I knew he spent a ton of time in Thailand, so I was like, "Well, I'm not going to learn it here. There's only one place to learn it." And I ended up hitting a deer uh, with my car driving home from work one day. Totaled the car. My parents said, "Well, now you got to be a grown up. Get." Another loan for another car because I've always paid everything off. I never had any loans on anything. I wasn't connected to anything when it came to my phone, car, anything, my bikes. And I took that check from the insurance and I flew my ass to Thailand
0: <laughs> and never and never looked back. So you said yeah. you said two things in there. That I that I'm curious about. I'll just start with with the basic. How tall are you, and what weight do you fight at?
1: I'm six foot four. Uh, for you guys from yeah. Europe and around, I'm one ninety three point five centimeters, and I f- have fought anywhere between one hundred seventy.
0: You froze there for a second. What What'd you say between 170 and what? Uh,
1: 170 and 187. Because yeah, got you. Glory's, uh, Glory's weight classes, they—it's a huge jump. It's either your 85 kilos or your 77 kilos, which is a 17, almost a 17 pound difference.
0: Got you, got you. Oh, but I mean, God. I mean, for a six foot four fella, uh, being able to get down to a buck 70 or even with floating within 180—that—that's pretty, it's that's pretty lean, you know. For for me, I'm six two, and you know I walk around at, at two twenty five. So I can only—I I don't even think it would be possible for me to get to, <laughs> to get to one eighty. I, whenever I was fighting, uh, the lowest I was able to get to was one ninety. But I was like in my early twenties, like I could not hit that any any longer.
1: You know. Um... My whole family's built this way. It's this lanky, wiry frame. My grandfather, on my mother's side, he was an Olympic runner from Poland, and he actually competed at Medicine Square Garden and set a record there in the I forgot how many meters it was like a mid mid-distance mid running. but my my family has uh, been more like an aerobic athlete uh on the aerobic athletes side so i'm not the most explosive athlete but i feel like i get the most benefit from doing a lot of explosive training which i have changed a lot in the past few years but i definitely have more of that frame of like a nick nate diaz uh more output and now i'm using it more to my advantage because i've always had that fantasy maybe it came from that now as i'm saying out loud maybe it came from that watching that dutch guy hitting those pads and always wanting to look explosive and and thick <laughs> and, and knocking everyone the fuck out that way uh maybe it came from that but I, I always had this thing and that's why if if you watch a lot of my fights like we're always in each other's face whether the guy is also 6'4 i'm in his face or the guy is 5'10 5'11 and just built like a brick shit house. I'm also in his face the same exact way. And it's cost me in the past where even if I get the win, even if I get the nod, like I'm taking way more damage than I really should. You watch my 30-plus amateur fights. There's like five teeps I've thrown in those 30-plus fights. And usually they're more offensive than trying to, trying to get guys to, uh, off of me. So uh, it, it's definitely taken a lot of changing and, uh, adjusting and, and having to do it and, and having to fight at an elite level, you know, uh, having to fight at lion fight and having to fight at glory to realize those things for guys to show me that you can't just fight any way that you want. You really have to start taking advantages of the aesthetics that your body presents, the, the strengths that you have as a fighter and not just what you kind of fantasize about in your head. Yeah.
0: It, it's funny because um, it, it's like a human emotion thing or, or just a human condition to where you always want what you don't have instead of mm. like celebrating what you do have. So I'm a fast twitch athlete. I am i won't say I'm explosive, but I, I have fat, fast twitch muscles. So I can hit things hard. I can look in a short frame kind of like what you're talking about but Mm -hmm. but like the cliff it's not like a gradual decline it's a steep drop so I'm constantly needing to focus on how do I keep my endurance you know on that level to to sort of push that cliff further and further and further eventually it'll happen especially if I'm going against a more endurance focused athlete so like the pressure fighters Dutch style fighters you've got a gas tank that want to do that I hate that shit I hate it. I hate it because I'm not built, I'm not built for it. Like I want to be explosive, finish it, or I want to have us playing the chess match. That way we're both controlling our energy systems and it's more, it's more within the rhythm that I can keep my explosivity throughout, you know, one, two, three, five rounds or or whatever it may be. So my, my co coach at, uh, at at stout, he is another, slow twitch athlete, but has since been incorporating more and more explosive exercises to get that same exact benefit um, that you're kind of talking about as well. Another taller sort of lanky uh, endurance or, or cardio type athlete as well with, with what you're talking about there. How do you see your evolution um, as a, as a fighter? How has it grown? So you, it, it seems like in the beginning or what you're talking about, it's ego or a vision of how you saw yourself, but then you realize, okay, I actually need to work with the gifts that I have because how I'm fighting right now isn't necessarily the the smartest thing. So, how has that progression been since that kind of point? And what have you looked to focus on more? Um, you know, obviously we're long guys, so sticking teeps will 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 be one of the you know one of the many tools that'll be in the toolkit to be able to keep it at a range that's, at, that's fortuitous for you, but at the same exact time, make sure that you're not in there taking unnecessary shots.
1: So I knew these principles and, and it's one thing knowing and a second thing actually implementing it, obviously, and, and especially when you're changing habits. So I knew these things and after throwing a couple of jabs and teeps and keeping along, I would get very impatient. I feel like I'm not in a fight unless... I get touched and you get touched and there's a risk of someone being finished. Uh, if, if you look at my glory fights, uh, I have three split decisions in glory that are losses. <clears throat> and if you look at every fight, I'm winning every fight and I'm winning the majority of the t- fight based on time and based on accurate shots and being technical. And then there's just that split second where you see me Get comfortable with that. Okay, I'm winning doing this. Okay, let's get something exciting and let's let's finish this in a more exciting fashion. And that's where I have made those big mistakes that have cost me not only you know health. Uh, you know, I broke my hand in in my second glory fight, like in the first round, and uh, you know making those decisions. But it's also cost me monetarily because it's half the pay when you lose. <laughs> and you know no, no one sees how the fight went. they just see that 0 and one or they just see that one and no and for someone that was on a very long fight win streak that won multiple national world titles as an amateur beat the number one guy as an amateur then had a kind of a fast track in the pros you know within my, the first year of being pro I fought for both line fight and for glory on on the main cards as co-main event and on the main card of glory. So I had to learn these things really quickly. It's just I wasn't um, matured enough and disciplined enough to keep them going for the entirety of the fight. And I guess I had to make those mistakes for them to really be embedded in me and have the time to sit with a broken hand, sling on my arm, and think about this shit, you know, like like what I'm really doing wrong. Because obviously, uh, when it happens three times, uh, it's no longer oh the I got robbed or whatever excuse may come to mind. Like, uh, but I was beating him, you know, eight minutes thirty seconds out of the fight. It, it doesn't matter. You once it happens three times, it's no longer the fault of anyone else. It's 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 all on you. So that's when I really started to feel like it was uh, becoming embedded in me that, okay, something has to change. And I have to go to mentors and coaches that are going to help me with this and are going to yell at me from the sideline whenever I stray away from this type of game plan. And I try to find those people and I try to work with them. And it's the ones that made it sexy to me, that really uh, stuck with me. Because the, the times that I would stray away from the game plan is the fact that that, that risk factor wasn't there and, and I would get bored of uh, being sticking on the outside and doing these things and not having those like exciting moments of like, okay, is this guy going to get finished? Am I going to get counter and get finished? And them showing me, okay, but when you use these long weapons, you can create these setups to get the actual finishes from these ranges like whether it be with your knees or elbows and using those long prods these safe uh prods and say like pretty much high reward low risk tactics for me to be able to get those exciting finishes and still put on exciting fights where i feel fulfilled with my own style
0: can you hear me now okay gotcha um so that actually fits entirely what i was just saying is that um that actually fits with how i not only fought but how i trained fighters um you know in a variety of different ways because i i never came from a style where it was like okay let's where it's you know, more Dutch inspired where it's like rock'em, sock'em. It was always very much a chess match. So even before I knew what it was, like I was always attracted to more of a moi for more sal. So like growing up seeing Samat, um, you know, obviously I was way too young to see him fight in his prime, but that was always uh, an example to where I look like that is Muay Thai beauty sort of at its finest. You always respected a Diesel noy type moi cow, you, but I knew that that was not necessarily my my temperament and nor was that a style that was going to work, you know, well for me. So I think how you're describing it makes a lot of sense. And that's the key to it. It's making it sexy. So you like, that's the thing that's stuck in my mind. So what have your coaches been doing to like, make this sexy for you? Is it more film study on some of the like real masters of the sport that use that style or is it again uh working with specific setups and and using that to get the finish because that's how I view it as well it's 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 a chess match you know we're not playing checkers we're playing chess so I might be you know prodding at you prodding at you but it's to see your reaction it's to bait you and get you in a specific rhythm of reaction so that I can take advantage of it
1: Uh, It's more of the latter. Uh, You know, Initially, I think the part that did put me in the place of wanting to look a certain way or having a a certain style was watching other fighters. And then later on, it became more of my coaches looking at me, my frame, my gifts, the things I do well and the things that I don't do well and shifting towards my strengths and away from the weaknesses where we're not taking those big risks, where it's a flip of a coin of you know, exchanging with a more powerful fighter, let's say in the pocket rather than being able to utilize my endurance, my footwork and creating certain angles because on top of it, I'm a southpaw. So forcing me to just use certain patterns that are going to keep me at a safe angle, a safe distance. And and if we get in the dangerous uh, places where we are in the pocket to utilize certain things to either close the distance and stuff it or to get back out at a distance and go off use footwork and that's really been a big game changer is just realizing that a lot of these things can happen and they can be exciting if we can make them flow together meaning like if a happens we can do b i've always been really good in mathematics geometry uh, going through school i never really had to study it so, when people explain it to me like from A to B, b to A kind of example, uh, I can click with it really quickly, and I feel like that's why I had a really hard time learning here in Thailand because things are explained like because and more hip and but how more hip like you know uh and 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 that was part of me moving into. The Namsekhnoi camp, you know, there's pros and cons to being anywhere in the world. I get these questions all the time through my site. Uh, what gym is the best? Which which gym do you like to train at? I should come to your gym. And I always tell people, it, man, it depends who you are. My gym might not be the best place to be. Uh, for you, you know, and, and the gym that you like is not the best place to be for me. Uh, there are a ton of gyms that people are like, oh my God, why don't you go train with this Thai trainer? And then I look at their gym, and there's not a single fighter above 5'4, you know? <laughs> yeah. So it's not going to be uh, the same situation and, and training that will help me specifically the best. And I ended up living at the Namseknoi camp when he opened up before he even opened up. I was sleeping on my friend's bed and on the island here and I heard that Namsak was opening up a gym and I found out that this may be that mentor type of instructor that I really need and have always looked for to to be there to adjust these things and to articulate things not only physically but verbally that will make things click
0: it's really interesting that you said through through mathematics so i i don't use a lot of mathematics explanations just because it tends to like scare people but i Mm -hmm. you know i i understand and and appreciate it more than most but i always try to I always tell my fighters and like how I was brought up with my crew is that you're going to be a master of the basics. Once you're a master of the basics, then you can grow and develop your own particular style and skill, but how you do that. And and people even say to this day, whenever they're sparring with me, it's like, Oh, your style is so tricky. I can't get a beat on it. It's like, it's not, it's actually incredibly basic, but, whenever you layer, whenever you're a master of the basics and you can layer them on, it becomes almost combinatorial. And all that means is, you know, if your base number, let's just say is six, but you raise that to the square root of six, that number becomes really large. And that's your sphere of potential combinations, reactions, to whatever your opponent's doing or setups or traps that you can place in there. So I explained it one time like that. I saw a lot of eyes, like, get a a little bit wide. So I tend to just like leave it at being a master of the basics. But I totally agree with you in like the logic of explanation. And I always try to explain to my fighters, like, I want you to do this, because here's what could happen. I need you to have your hand here. Because if you step to this side, you could get clipped with that overhand, right? Or the trade offs for this particular movement versus that not so much like the Thai style that I was brought up in. It's like, do this because I said, do this. It's like, all right, crew, I, I'll, I'll, I'll do this. Yeah. And, and, and that's how I'll, I'll do it. So you mentioned, uh, you mentioned footwork and endurance. What are some of the other things that you think you're like, particularly gifted in? Obviously you're a long fighter. Do you use a lot of long knees? Do you use a lot of long teeps? Do you think your, your kicks are particularly powerful? Like, what is some of the, the areas that you feel like you've, potentially got a competitive advantage in outside of your endurance uh and your footwork
1: the, the toughness was there from the beginning and th- then i relied on it too much uh, especially getting to the higher level and and the elite level uh once i turned pro then uh, you know everyone at that level is pretty fucking tough so unless you're uh I would say you have to be like 30 40% more skilled than someone else for that to even kick in because you, when you're within like this minimal uh, advantage in skill and and the tough both guys are pretty tough that that part doesn't really kick in and unless it's a five round fight a motherfucker of a fight and you guys are very close in skill or you're way above where you're you can actually break the guys you know as an amateur I would break guys all the time uh, when it came to me as a pro, not so much anymore. There, there's a lot more guys that I found out <laughs> are very tough as well. And then that's what I, where I have to, you know, look at these specific things, specific, specific advantages and, and, and taking those uh, low-risk attempts and, and attacks and different patterns. And that is my length. I uh, have a good left kick. And more recently, I have just a good left chain of attack that I have learned from a mix of... I pretty much blended a style that I really enjoyed from Sanchai with his little skip kicks. Where the way he is able to manage distance against fighters, whether they're taller than him uh, especially when they're taller than him for him to be able to cover distance uh, it, I saw an advantage in that even though I am a tall fighter in the fact that if a guy can get inside he doesn't want to be at the end of my punches and kicks either so then they tend to be far on the outside especially Western fighters so they either want to stuff me with range and hit from the short range where they have an advantage with shorter hooks and uppercuts and, and harder shots, or be way on the outside where they can get me to bite on something so they can get that big entry and blitz in. Uh, they don't want to be in that middle range where they're just getting picked apart at range. So I felt like it helped me there. Then I kind of took this trick style that Winyan Topich had. Uh, I sparred with him quite a few, time, uh, a few times in New Jersey, and I noticed that he was chaining a lot of... Uh, things from the same side. And he's not particularly like a southpaw uh type fighter but the things he was doing I felt like I can I can apply to all these left side weapons because he was using the same side. He was making things look exactly the same. So pretty much from his right side it was a kick, a punch, a knee and it was the same same body motion and language that released a different weapon every time he did the same motion. So you were just thinking like the defense the reaction is different for every single one of these so I have to defend the cross a different way than I have to defend the rear kick the different way that I have to defend the rear teep the rear knee so all these things having gone in your head now the mind is thinking too much what you said like oh man like you're so tricky I can't get a read that's exactly it is like it's it's actually really simple is the set is that setup is that faint that looks like that faint is the same faint for all four weapons. Now, which one is coming? I don't know. So I tried to put those two together with the type of feint that my coach Krupot showed me. And he actually was a very like tank-like fighter. Uh, he trained at Simbi and he, was, he has a famous video with Sanchai, like throwing him around in the ring. I ended up spending uh, quite a bit of time in Phuket training with him one-on-one for my entire training camp for Moss fight, which is like a knockout only nine minute fight. And he pretty much showed me how to blend like all these different things together. So I've come up with a number of systems for things to really make sense. And, And that kind of transitioned into me making this whole striking Academy and bringing it all together online. And, and so I feel like a lot of what I'm doing is a practice of, Assessment, a lot of assessment, trying it out in fights, trying it out with fighters and people that I'm coaching, and then just seeing how it all works so I can bring it all back to one simple foundational system, pretty much what you were saying, like being, bringing it back to being very basic after doing a lot of like really hard mathematical, like looking at angles and exactly how things work. So I can explain it to the layman, like, like kind of how you said, like you had a lot of big eyes after you explain things a certain way, you know, that'll click with me. And then like 90% of the room is is going to be looking at you know, like well, eyes, eyes wide open, like, well, that's too much information at once
0: that's the ma- like that's the that's the mark of mastery of a particular topic whenever you can break it down to its most simplest form and you can explain it to anyone so i think that evolution that you sort of went through is something that i hear a lot of top coaches or top fighters go through like that consistent beginner's mind where they're constantly looking to evolve you've got to have the basics and like i always say like the roots you've got to have roots so whenever i'm talking about or uh, with a lot of MMA fighters, I think that's one of the things that they lack is because there's a multi-discipline sport, you, what you see now more times than not is it's just a generalist and it's, a lo- it's very superfluous in a lot of ways versus like I only do Muay Thai and I've got deep roots in that and then I can go stack on wrestling or jujitsu or boxing and then develop roots in those things. And those are some of the top fighters, which obviously is less prevalent given you're focused on, on Muay Thai in and of itself. But that's how I see whenever whenever you have that knowledge, then you can break it down to its most its most simplest form. And how you describe those same side attacks, that's literally just like the game. You just try to have everything look relatively similar and then, Based upon the reactions, then you make the adjustments like through there. And I didn't create it like you didn't create it. I'm just sitting there and looking at the best. One of the guys that I love to watch now and now O is he does those very same things. Like he does a very nice feint with his kick and it looks exactly as if he's going to cork it off, but he's just feigning changing levels. So you don't know if he's going to actually throw it. But whenever he throws it, you're there for it, and he covers distance. And for a relatively shorter guy, like you're just sitting, you know, you see them taking those, those shots, whether it be on the arm or to the body or, or barely getting their leg up to block it. So I, I love those particular styles. So how you were sort of talking through that process of where you've gone, um, I, I, love, I love that in general. So talking from Striking Academy, but also uh, it's been on my mind whenever you mentioned it, you're fighting and going to school and doing all this stuff and working harder than other people that had more time. So with that, like ruthless productivity, I'll call it, have you adopted that same exact approach, um, with what you're doing now with striking Academy and some of the other business initiatives that you're working on as well. So it's like you're a full-time pro fighter and you dedicate a hell of a lot of time to that, but also you've got these burgeoning businesses on the side. So have you taken that same mentality of ruthless productivity and then use that to sort of push um these additional initiatives and or maybe even improve um your moi thai because there's no there's no room for like like fuck around it you know like you've got to be very structured with your time because you've got these additional initiatives that you've got to uh dedicate time and effort to.
1: Uh 100% it's a very loaded answer in a way because it's it's worked in more ways than one. I I tend to be an extremist, like where I dive into one thing. So I want to go back first to what you were saying about like rooting yourself into certain sports, even as like a, a MMA fighter that has to train all these different arts. I looked at Muay Thai the same exact way where I wanted to learn clinch. That's why I went to Thailand and lived in Thailand. I said to myself, what I noticed is in the clinch, a lot of people explained it this way where You know, I'll look at someone like Sylvie. She is a girl that has had more fights than anyone else in Thailand. And no, she doesn't look anything like me. Our styles aren't going to be the same. But the way she explained it is uh, the clinch is such a feeling process. And there's just no way for you to gain that reaction speed until you spend hours and hours and hours within it feeling what actually works and how she explained the kid's Uh, Pretty much growing up, there's very little instruction and a lot of natural feel of like, you know, what works, the leverage points, how to balance yourself within the clinch and how it's an art within the art. And that's exactly why I went and just lived inside a camp. I was on a bunk bed with a fan, one fan on a bunk bed, which you can imagine doesn't work because then he he wants the, the guy above me. He was a he was like a 16 year old boy. And then I was on the bottom bunk because my big ass isn 't climbing up there, and this fan is in the middle, so neither one of us is getting it. <laughs> neither one of us is really getting sleep because it 's so hot yeah. in, in the in the tropics, and uh, you know just spending every single day thirty minute clinch sessions and then ten minute instruction and and ten more minutes of clinch and that 's just the morning and then doing it in the afternoon you get a staph infection. I was a sponsor fighter. There was no excuses not to show up. Uh, They would literally put an ankle guard around the staph infection and go, okay, on the bag, you do this many knees, you do these drills. And if I didn't do that for those for half a year, I wouldn't have the understanding that I do now of certain feel. Um, you know, no one can teach you how to feel something. I can explain how something feels. It's like if you're a virgin, you try to explain to someone <laughs> what sex feels like. You know, like, like you, you can imagine it, but you, you don't know that true feeling until you're in it. And <laughs> <laughs> pun intended. Uh, <laughs> so when, when it came to a clinch, I was in Thailand. When it came to uh, me feeling like I need to learn a little bit more uh, boxing, then I completely took time off of Muay Thai. I went into Golden Gloves. I fought four times in boxing only. I fought, I was a finalist in the Golden Gloves. Uh, there was a no contest in the finals. And then I called out the guy that won the entire Golden Gloves. I had a split decision loss against him. He was like an undefeated Ukrainian fighter. and um, And then in, in the pros, I also had a bad injury with my knee I blew my knee out in glory and I took a pro boxing fight to like get back to the basics of boxing to like root myself in certain things that I saw myself making mistakes in uh and and then trying to blend it all back into Muay Thai and uh I feel like there you get those advantages that everyone talks about with like uh here we go Nurmagomedov oh Khabib (laughs) with Khabib I I thought I can say it well because I'm Polish but no Um, with Khabib where you know he's just so many levels above everyone else in this one specific thing his striking isn't really even good to the average striker you know but he can make you think about his wrestling so much that he pops you with an overhand the way that he did Connor, and That's what I saw the clinch as in Muay Thai is that what wrestling is to MMA clinches to Muay Thai because I can always choose to tie you up. And if we're in there for more than five seconds, I can already feel what your level is. If you're a super strong athletic guy, sometimes it takes more time because some guys are insanely strong and and they can keep it up for a little bit. But once that strength leaves, I can, then you really can see what the technique is. And, and especially if the guy's not super athletic, then within the first 10 seconds, you go, oh, this guy doesn't know how to clinch. And now I can choose the entire rest of the fight to just be a soul-sucking experience.
0: I, so this particular club, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play for all like our Muay Thai fighters and our MMA guys because I, like, I can't express in words how much – I I agree with everything that you just said, and obviously you've got a way more distinguished path than mine. But it 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 rhymes at least on a very low level. You know, my initial style, the school style that I had was moy cal, like we're forward fighters, knees clinch. That's what we do. Again, as I mentioned, that's great. I am incredibly thankful that I had that. Rooting in it, and I still need to level up even more on my clinch, but that's not my temperament. My temperament was always to be, uh, you know, uh, um, more like Samat, more, more, more. Familiar. And I, I found other individuals or, or fighters within that particular camp that would help me out. And then I gradually established my own style around that, but then I just stopped. I stopped that that gym closed. So I was like, you know what, I like my style. I don't want to go to another camp or another school that's going to try to change my style. So I'm just going to box and I just only boxed and competed for, you know, multiple years and then ultimately went back to Muay Thai. And now I'm in this sort of frame where, no matter what, you know, if I'm going with a boxer, no worries. Uh, I just need to, you know, it, it just takes you an instant to kind of like, oh, okay, we're back in boxing. So adjust your stance, adjust your footwork just a little bit. And same exact thing whenever we're doing, whether it be more Dutch style kickboxing or Muay Thai or, or whatever it is, you have that ability because you have those roots. I didn't, I, obviously, I'm not fighting as much as you. So there's a trade off for me in terms of my ring generalship and my just ring IQ in general because I never fought as much. But through that experience, I feel comfortable no matter where we're gonna go. And since then I've taken that to uh, more MMA style striking, which is an additional wrinkle on all of that. There's certain things again, that you can and cannot do, but mm-hmm. I always tell the MMA guys and the Muay Thai guys, you have to, there's, there's very few hard rules, but if you're gonna fight under us, Will and I, you're gonna have strong clinch and you're gonna have strong knees because if you've got the basics and particularly clinch, just like you said, you can dictate you that can always be your control alt delete if you're like oh shit i don't know what's coming at me or just like you said you get in there and you realize this guy has no idea what they're doing in the clinch or you can feel that they're using too much muscle like eventually they're, they're going to burn mm-hmm. out it's not technique and Being in the clinch whenever you're either deadly tired or you don't know what you're doing, it's one of the most helpless feelings that you can have. And it's incredibly dangerous as well because you've got all the nasty weapons of Muay Thai at your disposal to like really dig in there. So I couldn't agree more. And in addition, I think there's a lot of um, underappreciated applications of traditional Muay Thai clinch to the MMA game, it doesn't it doesn't translate apples to apples. But again, I sound a, a bit like a douche. But on these past few podcasts, I've talked about how our particular segment of the U.S., Pittsburgh, it's known for brood- for breeding uh, incredible wrestlers. You know, we've got a laundry list of amazing wrestlers, and a lot of those translate over to MMA now and are mm-hmm. are at our gym. I've yet to be taken down whenever we're doing shoot boxing, which is essentially just striking for MMA with takedowns on it because I have that footwork from boxing, but also I feel whenever we get into a clinch situation, I've got that body awareness as to not just the strength, but also where are my levers? It's like, are they heavy on this foot? Then I can look for a sweeper, a dump mm-hmm. to this side and same exact thing. And I think there's a lot of underappreciated elements of that and even setups that MMA guys, which you'll gradually see as the level increases that they'll, they'll use and, and grow with. We always joke that it's like, I do muay Thai wrestling whenever I'm going with the guys. Like I use my muay Thai to set up my my wrestling, which can be used to set up elbows and and all sorts of nasty knees if you're doing it from a specific um, MMA perspective. But sort of how you you described all that, I could not, I could not, I could not agree more.
1: I love, 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 love seeing good clinch work in MMA especially like I had high hopes for Kamaru because when when he was fighting Woodley he had a beautiful transitions where he would threaten the takedown and then transition to knees and elbows I was like yes like fuck man like not a lot of people are taking advantage in the transitions of actually doing damage and and he he was really showcasing that really well and then I don't know what happened this past weekend against Masvidal because <laughs> not the same thing. Again, Masvidal was probably just as dangerous in those transitions, so he just didn't want to transition as, as much and give him that room.
0: Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I, we're even like I, – I won't try to pretend to, to, to be douchery and say we're at the cutting edge, but because we look at it from those areas, there's a lot of ways that we see – It's like. Why aren't they using this? It's, it's not as difficult of a transition that a lot of people see. And in particular, getting to some of those nastier Muay Thai weapons whenever you're looking for the elbows and the knees because you feel the pressure. You have to give respect for the takedown, like especially with, with Usman. If you've got that forward pressure against the cage, there's a lot of things you're thinking, okay, shit, he's changing levels. I've got to be respectful of that whenever they're thinking through that or they've got their attention there, there's tons of opportunities to be able to utilize other more traditional Muay Thai clinch weapons that people aren't just putting it together. Again, it's that it goes back to that basics type things to where if you've got those basics, I don't need to be in a corner shouting at you saying, you know, hit him with the elbow or, you know, step through and hit him with the knee. It's something to where it's a feel game and you recognize it and sense it because you've got those basics, because you've spent the first two, three, four years doing Muay Thai only, and then gradually made the transition over to PHAJ or wrestling or or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. So before, so we've, we've chatted a bunch before we wrap up, I want to, I I just want to learn a little bit more about what you're doing with Striking Academy. So you, you talked about it as synthesizing, essentially your knowledge and experience that you've acquired you know, the hard way. Um, What's the general driving purpose behind Striking Academy? And where do you see it growing towards?
1: What I explained uh, about a lot of places having a lot of pros and a lot of cons, depending on where you are, me having to move to Thailand to be able to experience that type of feel in the clinch, me having to Go through the golden gloves to experience a certain type of feel in boxing and then also having to spend the extra time to blend it into muay thai and striking because as we said before there are certain like hard rules to how we transition boxing into muay thai and how we transition the clinch into mma all these certain things that we have to do and It takes time to build the initial pattern. Then it takes time to blend that pattern into our overall style. And I've had a ton of awesome trainers and I've had a million different ways of being explained how to kick. I've had a million different ways of being explained like how to set something up, how to faint, how to do certain things. And one thing I haven't had is someone kind of bring it all into one one place where, where i can have all the pros without the cons like where i can learn freedom of lifestyle and training and being able to add like science into it so when i had a mentor when i had a mentor type trainer i didn't have the freedom to also do like scientific strength training or to be able to ask too many questions. I can only absorb the information that I was given. And I've also during this time been able to recognize certain patterns and things that are happening that are rather simple, but no one ever puts into an actual system. So that's exactly what i try tried to do is figure out ways where, like you said, certain people, it's too much when you explain it in a like really scientific way where it's like numbers and angles but certain people learn from being audibly explained something some people learn being visually explained some people love seeing like a fight example and then a technique example so i was like i pretty much didn't want to leave any stone unturned so i i pretty much combined all of that into one so the majority of the videos have fight examples, sparring examples, then it goes into actual explanation. If it's a private lesson, then there's an audio with diagrams on screen and visual breakdowns on top of it. So trying to combine every type of learning that anyone can pretty much come across and whatever sticks with them and explaining it in a million different ways. And then just simplifying it by bringing it all together and it happening at the same time. So having an audio explanation over a visual diagram that is explained slowly, but then shown in a live setting at a fast setting when like, when things are actually happening and all of it comes from actual ring experience it's from it, None of it is, you know, like, okay, we're doing one, two, three, slip, duck, three, four, five, kick, slip check kick anything like that it's 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 real training and 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 it's things that are applicable things that you can use within the ring or if you're just a student that actually appreciates learning the skill the way it's supposed to be learned and then also having fun with it so that's why i came up more recently we had pretty much an apocalypse happen here like Mm -hmm. the entire place uh where we have been empties out because a lot of foreigners are getting kicked out. And we were training one day. We have nowhere else to train because you have to social distance. Uh, There's only two people that can be uh, together at once. So go back to like April. I'm not talking about now. Now things are open. So it was just me, one training partner. And we're training at this abandoned building. We just put down mats. And then there was this lady burning trash in the background so there's like fire and smoke and I'm I turned to my friend I go we're literally training in the apocalypse here so I just try to take things that are complicated and things that are very skill based and then making it more fun and simple by Creating this apocalyptic theme where it looks cool—it's called winning patterns or winning tactics—and and and it sounds sexy, but I'm really kind of tricking you into learning things that are that you can actually use their actual skill learning patterns and things that were taught to me to be used like within the actual art versus just making you go into the gym and sweat. So it's more skill-based training rather than. Getting a workout in—it
0: sounds amazing. In all honesty, and and as who knows how this whole COVID thing is going to shake out? I don't think anyone has, even the scientists, have any idea better than the layperson. But I think it's that what you're building right now with the Striking Academy is more relevant and needed now in this post COVID world probably than ever before. So like you said, even for fighters, like, you know, I don't fight anymore, but my guys, we are locked out of the gym for three plus months, um, you know, while this was going on. So being able to have the ability to even grow with different techniques that maybe, you know, you never incorporated into your game, is incredibly valuable but also even for the layperson that's like hey I need to keep moving or else my mm-hmm. skills are going to atrophy or everything that I learned is going to sort of go by the wayside um, I, I think it's more relevant and more needed now than, than ever before so uh, I'm super excited to see what continues to happen and how you continue to build um, on Striking Academy you know, I'll make sure that I include a, a link to that. I'll make sure I include a link um, to your podcast and, and whatever else you, you need me to do, because um, I support everything that, that you're doing, but also um, how you present it, how you think about it, and how you curate it, it, it entirely kind of like flows in how I look at that as well. So hat tip. Um, to you. And I appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule. I know it's your evening over there um, to, have a, to have a long-winded conversation and for us to just, you know, sort of, sort of shoot the shit for a little bit.
1: Beautiful. I really appreciate you uh, having me on. It's always really good to just have a chat with uh, like-minded people, especially uh, on different sides of the globe. So having a little bit of a different perspective on things, but lighting up, uh, you're kind of riding the same path.
0: 100, percent I I couldn't agree more. We, uh, I definitely can't wait to have you back on another episode. Um, because I feel like we could have just kept going and kept, (laughs) kept going, but for the sake of both of our, our days and schedules, given it's Friday, um, I'll, I'll sort of wrap it up there. So that concludes this episode of the crypto Muay Thai podcast. Thank you everyone for, for tuning in and I will see you next time.
1: Welcome to part two of the podcast, the crypto part that we tended to (laughs) skip over after talking about technique for an hour out of the 90 minutes.
0: Oh, man. So tell me about, uh, yeah, I completely, I completely effed up. And so tell me about how you got into the digital asset sphere, how you heard about the digital asset sphere.
1: I wish I listened to this crazy guy I met in Chiang Mai. So Chiang Mai is a big hub for digital nomads, right? There's a few hubs in the world and Chiang Mai tends to be one because of its low cost of living. It's beautiful. It's by the mountains, has great internet service. There's a lot of universities here in Thailand and I always heard about it and I was traveling around Thailand and then finally... I ended up in Chiang Mai. Everyone talked about elephant country, being in the mountains. I didn't want to go to another city because I lived in Bangkok for 2 months and couldn't stand the gray walls and the smoke anymore. And then I went to Chiang Mai and figured out what all the fuss was about. So beautiful there. We ended up living there for a while. But I went to the mall and they had one of these 24/7 cafes. And this crazy looking dude was next to me and we i don't know what got us to chatting i think we were in line to get coffee at the same time he had like a top hat and long hair coming out of the top hat and like a watch on a chain and pretty much picture like like a that steampunk without the actual mask like type of guy and he looked like when he explained this to me, it seemed like he was trying to get me into some type of like internet scam, right? And I was like, yeah, because I, I run with Bitcoin. I was like, I heard about this thing somewhere and that sounds familiar, but you look crazy. So I'm not going to listen to you. And he's like, yeah, I invest in it and this this and this. So time frame, Bitcoin at the time was $300. And he was talking to me about how he's like, you know, I normally charge this much an hour to talk about this and give my advice. But, you know, if you want to meet up sometime, you know, we can just chat about it. And I was like, no, you're crazy. No. <laughs> I, I, I said, yeah, it sounds good, man. I was like, All right, this guy, this guy's fucking crazy. And uh, then I just never heard it, about it again until that huge bull run happened. Where it started going up, and it was around like that six, seven thousand dollar area, and I don't know what really led me to go into Litecoin at the time. I felt like uh, it, it was kind of swaying for like Bitcoin had so such a big run up that the old coin cycle kind of started. Yeah. and I looked at it, and I go, okay, the trend is going. I don't want to hit any type of like falling knife here, but it seems like it's going to keep going. There's a lot of momentum. So I put $3,000 into Litecoin. It doubled within like the week. Oh my God, 6,000, 7,000. Oh my God. So I kept just throwing money in and like, into so the, like, what well, ended up being a fire. <laughs> because It kept running up and running. It kept running up and running up. I, I didn't end up really losing any money. Um, I ended up coming out basically even, but I remember I was, it was a very exciting time. I've never really worked into investments and any of these things. I didn't properly educate myself. I I would watch a few videos, listen to maybe one podcast, and there, you know, whatever the hot altcoin was that day, I was like, all right, let's put a few hundred in that. And, and then I started going onto like other exchanges, and then. Uh, at the same time as it started to just completely fall and the bubble bursted. And uh, one of the exchanges that they had, I believe it was Neo uh, shut down and they pretty much, someone stole all the money off of it. The exchange shut down and that was the only money I lost because it it shut down. So my money just disappeared, you know, and I couldn't get it off. So that was the only money that I really lost. But that like $4,000 that I ended up making in, you know, like two weeks that that ran up, that all fizzled away because I was like, it'll come back up. You know, everyone's huddle hodl, hodl, you know, just, just uh, you know, keep the money instead of uh, look at the long term, it'll go to 100,000. And, uh, then I started to kind of freak out as it was falling and I still didn't pull out, then it fell even more. And I go, okay, at least I can come out even on this and maybe learn a lesson from it. And so I did, I, uh, just started looking into all types of equities and investments. After that, it, it just got my interest. I was just like, oh, I can literally use capital to make more capital. And how can I look into this, into like doing it a bit smarter and actually looking at trends or what's happening. And honestly, the thing that's served me the, the most is common sense and not staring at it every single day. <laughs> uh, th- those two things, uh, because much like fighting, much like anything really, uh, what's happening right now, the middle-class I feel like suffers the most out of anyone because of, you know, huge business, getting all these government bailouts, uh, you know, like you're a failing business and you're costing people even more money. So not only are like for, for whatever you're producing, you're losing money on, on top of that, you're getting bailed out using other people's money. So, they're getting help. And then the people at the very bottom end are getting help as well. They're getting government assistance. And then the people that are in the middle are paying for it all, essentially, you know, for the people on the bottom end, people on the top end. And as all this is happening, I started to look into, I was like, oh, being in the middle is almost like the worst place to be. In fighting, I remember feeling that invincibility, you know, like when I first started that ignorance. So like the ignorance sometimes is bliss because you can look at a pattern and go, okay, this makes common sense. This makes sense to invest into. And then it runs up and you go, okay, let me, as I'm winning, let me pull out. And then there's like that part in the middle where you know some shit, You're like oh, I know some shit. I'm, I'm going to hop on these like trends or do like too much like technical analysis and looking at things a little bit too much. And overthinking and then making mistakes versus then there's the top end half where you really know stuff to a point where like you have deep, deep information where you can predict things before they even happen. And, and, and you know information that other people don't know where you're the first one to hear the news before the before anything runs up, whether it's stocks or crypto. So like being in the middle, I found to be uh, the worst place.
0: Yeah, it's that's a... A s- interesting story but also it's not uncommon and and at the end of the day um, you know outside of me being you know running an investment fund uh, that we're currently like thinking about um, open sourcing like some of our analytics like essentially around a risk metric so that um, situations that you articulated which still happen to this day just in other alternative coins altcoins um, to where retailers or even financial advisors on behalf of their customers don't have to ride like those waves where human emotion comes in and or lose money at the same exact time to know that you're not buying at the top or maybe you can dollar cost average um, a little bit more aggressively if you feel that you're down at a historically a good time to buy. I, I won't go into all the nuts and bolts. Like I'm, I'll definitely send information to you, but I mean, that's one of the areas where it's a very common story to where it's like, okay, this is something that I could potentially add value to the masses, but also for the podcast too, you know, I like crypto, I'm obviously in the business and I like Muay Thai, but also realize that fighters are some of the individuals where you make a bunch of money in the early part of your lives. And then you have to figure out a way to either multiply it or make it last for, you know, the back half or the back two thirds of your life. And, you know, this is an investment advice disclaimer, but I think, um, you know, digital assets are, are one of those potential avenues that you're talking about, in ter- you know, along with equities and, and other areas that uh, could potentially um, add some different value um, to, to, to fighters' uh, financial health, too. So, you know, conversations like this, I think, are, are very helpful as well um, for, for fighters to hear about, and then hopefully maybe even level up, uh, some of their education sources so that they have a, an additional, um, avenue that they can, that they can look at and, and try to help and them grow themselves. So with, with that, uh, we'll wrap up again, the, the, this episode of the crypto, uh, and Muay Thai podcast, and thank you for listening and we'll talk to you soon.